Well, good morning. I was very quiet. And that makes me a little nervous. <clears throat> My name, uh, as Bill said, is Andrew Kloss, and I was here with you last week. And um, I'm one of the pastoral fellows here at Christ Community, and I am um, yeah, just thankful to be here. And one of the best parts about getting to preach at every new campus um, is getting to introduce yourself. And so I get to introduce myself to you, and hopefully after the service I can get to know some of you, or some of you a little more. Um, I've gotten to know you a little bit. We, we think there might be a problem with my beard. So I told them I'd shave it, but if it doesn't work, it's okay. So anyways, um, let me introduce myself really quick, and then we'll jump into this morning's text. As I said, my name's Andrew Clausen, and I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, born and bred, Husker true, right? Red, anybody, anybody here from Nebraska? All right, there you go. That's not too bad. Um, and so, like I said, I'm from Omaha, and um, I grew up in the church. Uh, I'm a, kind of a re- recovering Presbyterian. And so being in this building, this beautiful church building, is, is like going home to my roots because um, our church growing up was just a beautiful building like this one here. Um, and so I did a lot of the churchy things growing up. I was kind of the churchy kid. I did the churchy things. But then in high school, things kind of changed. Things started to shift. And um, though it looked on the outside like I was this churchy kid kind of heading down one path, doing things one way on the weekends and kind of at nights, I was actually this totally different person. I was, I was heading away from God, away from the good things of his word, and um, living a life just of, of kind of the party scene and, and going deeper and deeper into that. And I went on to the University of Nebraska, and believe it or not, I don't know any of you didn't experience this, but college is generally only a place where things get harder to get away from sin, Right? I mean, college just gives you ample opportunities to do the things that God would rather you not do. Um, and I just, I just dove headlong into that path, away from God um, and away from the things that he upholds. Well, my uh, senior year of college, my senior year of college, I was driving home from a friend's wedding. Um, actually, my friend's dad was driving, um, and I couldn't sleep. And I just so happened to take my youth Bible with me on this trip. I, don't, I have no idea why. It was only by the providence of God. And uh, I couldn't sleep, so I opened my dusty youth Bible, and as I was reading God's Word, as I read this story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son, I recognized my deep need for a Savior, the deep reality that I had sinned against God, a holy God, but one who would uh, take me back if I turned away from my sin and put my faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. It was at that point that um, He changed my heart. He brought me back to Himself. Um, and, and he's been my life ever since. So after college, uh, after graduation, I went back to that home church and started working there, and that's where I met my wife, Greer, um, and we got married in 2008. We've been married almost five years. Amen? All right, that is a good deal, right? Five years of marriage. Um, and um, after, after about seven months of marriage, we got pregnant with our son, Owen, and, um, which is really exciting. He's three now, and he will be four in November, which is a long time now, so that's a weird thing to throw out there, but I'll let you know that anyways. Um, And he's three years old right now, and and my wife is pregnant with another. We're going to have a little girl in less than two months, which is also, that we can get real excited about that. All right. Yeah. You can share in that excitement. I want you to. Um, And so we're going to have a little girl soon, and that's really exciting also. So we went off um, our first year of marriage 
after about one year, we went off to Trinity, and um, that's where we kind of got connected with Christ Community, with this wonderful church, and we applied for the fellowship. We were accepted to come and serve alongside you. And it's been a great blessing. So let me just first of all say thank you for this opportunity to come and to serve with all of you. Um, this has been just the greatest blessing for me and my family, and so we still have about a year and some change left here before we get sent out into... Um, you know, the rest of the world, I guess. I don't know what to say there. But I do have a, a, a few photos, and I have a friend, Jason, who has something for me, apparently. So I do have some pictures to show you. This is kind of our engagement and wedding. Really exciting times here. This is more, really, this is just so that you get suckered into liking me enough to listen to the rest of my sermon. So this is what I'm doing here, buttering you up. Um, this is kind of our, our wedding pictures. This is our engagement day. If you go to the next one, it was like four degrees this day. And, and she still said yes. You know, this beautiful, wonderful woman still said yes. Uh, the next one, I think, is us in Chicago. We moved to Chicago, like I said. That's us kind of in the downtown area on July 4th. And then we had, I think, a baby is the next thing. Yeah, what a sweet little man. And soon there will be a little girl that looks just like... Um, and so after that... I had to learn how to study and be a dad at the same time. I'm actually reading a book on Greek right there, which is stupid. Um, I don't know if I could ever think of those two things at once. Um, and so um, after that, what else is there in this, in this folder of files? We had a snowpocalypse. That's our son, Owen. And then what happened is all the snow melted. And uh, he, was, he had less fun in this next photo, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, it all melted. We found some snow somewhere. And then uh, we moved. We moved here to Kansas City, and that was about nine months ago that we moved here, which is pretty awesome, too. That's our dog, Lola, um, who is also really excited to get out of Illinois. And I think, I don't know if there's any more in here or not. Oh, there's Owen with another dog. Um, So, why don't we get started? Why don't I open with a word of prayer, and then we can jump into God's word here this morning. Father, we praise you for your word, and we we, we recognize that it is is very clear, um, and yet it it continues to push us, um, to move us, um, it, it, its, its purpose is to show us who you are and who we are in light of your reality, in light of your truth. So, Lord, I pray uh, as we think about these important things that your word addresses this morning, Lord, please soften our hearts. Lord, as we approach your word, please help us to humbly submit to what it says. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us as followers of you um, to know you more and to glorify you more through our lives. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Well, a couple times, or a couple times, a couple days ago this week, I was, I was reading an article online about um, this billionaire in Australia has decided to make an exact replica of the Titanic. Um, and he's going to commercialize it as kind of this cruise, this luxury and novelty cruise liner, um, and actually have people get on this thing and sail across the Atlantic Ocean, right? So the article said this, Titanic was the ship of dreams. Titanic 2, that's what he's calling it, is the ship where dreams come true. It goes on, while there is concerted effort to recapture history, Titanic 2 will be designed to meet present-day safety guidelines, helping ensure passengers do not suffer the same fate as their predecessors. The new vessel will be equipped with 18 modern lifeboats, capable of holding more than the ship's capacity of both passengers and crew. Amen. Uh, The design company told reporters that Titanic 2 would be the most safe cruise ship when it is launched, a comment that drew laughter for its historically significant jab at fate. When pressed further about the vessel's improved safety, the 
improved safety features, the owner, Mr. Palmer, would not go as far as the original ship's builders, declining to say his version of Titanic would be, quote, unsinkable. Now, as, as many kind of cruise conundrums we've seen in the news lately, I, I do truly doubt that this ship is going to go down in peril in the same way that the, the original Titanic went down over 100 years ago or right at 100 years ago. But it's funny, when I first saw this article, when I first saw this, this, this headline, I was a bit apprehensive at first, right? When I saw it, I was like, wow, it kind of seems like we've been there before, huh? I mean, we've seen this story play out before, and the first time didn't go so well, right? It didn't go so well. And that's really similar to what we're going to see in our text this morning. We're going to see a similar story to what's already happened to God's people. And it didn't play out so well the first time. But before we get there, let me take just one step back and let me set up our text just a little. We're following and open here um, the story of God's people through the Bible. And we've been following them since they were one man in Abraham that has now grown to a whole nation called Israel, right? And God had actually, had, had, they had gone to Egypt and they had fallen into slavery and God had actually gone to Egypt and taken them out of slavery, taken them out of bondage. And now he's taking them into the wilderness. He's going to take them to his promised land. And while they were in the wilderness, after saving them, he gave them his law. He gave them his good design for what their life should look like. What a life of abundance and blessing can actually be. And then he took them to the promised land. And at the border of the promised land, not yet entering in, but at the border of the promised land, God gave them a choice. And he said, obey and follow me in or turn away and leave. And in Numbers 13 and 14, a few weeks ago, we even heard this passage preached where Israel did not follow God into the promised land. Instead, they turned away. They went their own way. And what happened? Well, it didn't go so well for them this time either. It didn't go so well for them that time either. They turned away. God punished them. God punished them for years of wandering in the wilderness. Um, So anyways, where was I? Promised land numbers 13 and 14. So they've been here before. They've dealt with this situation. And the first time, it really didn't go so well for them. 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And the generation that made that decision didn't get to go into the wilderness. And that's where we are in the story today in Deuteronomy 30. So why don't I open up with this text? And and, and as I set up this text, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 20. What's happening is Moses is giving his last sermon before he dies and before the people will eventually enter into the promised land. And this is the last thing that he's saying to them. And what we see in this text over and over again is this this idea of repentance and obedience. There's a melody line that's being played through, through all of Deuteronomy. And the crescendo, the literary crescendo is right here in Deuteronomy 30. So let me read from verses 11 to 20. It says this. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. 
if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live in the you shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. So God is giving Israel a second chance, and he's giving them this this choice, this decision between two ways. He lays it out there very clearly for them. He says in verses 1 through 3, if you go back to where I believe Rachel had read, I think her name was Rachel, I hope I got that right. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, verse 2, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you with all your heart, with all your soul. Verse 3, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. His blessing and his mercy will be returned to his people. So God has set this choice before them. And he said, you've been here before. The first time it didn't go so well. But I'm a God of second chances, and I'm giving it to you again. They're at the doorstep of the promised land. And he says very clearly, the choice is this. Repent and obey and live, or turn away from me and be cursed and die. Now, regardless of of, of where you've been or or what you've done or who you would say you are, whether you follow Jesus or whether you don't, all of us recognize the importance of big decisions and the consequences that big decisions bring. All of us can recognize that that big questions, that, that big questions have important implications for our life. And this is arguably the most important question that God has ever posed on his people. And Moses isn't just saying this to God's people a couple thousand years ago. He's saying it to us right now. This text is for us. And he's saying, will you follow Jesus Christ? That's the question he's posing to us. So as we get into this, we're going to see that he's asking, will you follow Jesus Christ? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, all of us would say at the end of the day, we want to go our own way. All of us want to go our own way. So, here, God is presenting this question. He says, the choice is simple. Repent and obey, for it leads to life. These ideas of repentance and obedience are are littered through the Bible. But as I said, Deuteronomy really captures them over and over again. And here in Deuteronomy 30 is, is just kind of the apex of those two themes. And what we're going to see is that these two things are important for understanding who God is, and what he's done in Jesus Christ. Who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. So what we're going to see is that repentance leads to life, and obedience continues to walk towards that life. Repentance leads to life, and obedience continues to walk toward that life. 
So first, let's talk about re uh, repentance. Let me take a drink of water. Repentance is a turning away from sin and turning towards God in Christ. A turning away from sin and turning towards God in Christ. So if I'm heading down this path over here towards sin and myself, repentance just means a total 180 where I'm actually going this way. And that's what we see here in this text over and over again. And it gives us a flavor. It kind of textures our understanding of repentance. And it tells us three things. It tells us that repentance is about heart. It's about our heart. It's a heart matter. Repentance crushes our idols, and repentance implies obedience. Look with me in verse 6. It says this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Repentance is a heart matter. There needs to be a heart change in order to understand what repentance actually means. And so, as God is talking about this circumcision of the heart, we have, you know, this extremely graphic image. And I think that's there on purpose. But essentially what God is saying is, is circumcision was this outward sign of an inward change. And God is saying here, you, you, it's great that you have that outward sign, but there has to be the inward change. There can't just be the outward sign. There has to actually be the inward change. You know, our son, our son Owen is in this, this fun place in life where as he's gotten older, um, we don't just tell him the do's and don'ts anymore. You know, when he's younger, that's really all he can understand is what keeps him safe. What are the boundaries? But now we can start to help him understand what good boundaries are there for, why those boundaries are actually there. We can ask him why, and he can actually respond why he did something. You know, he can now understand that loving and caring mommy doesn't look like jumping on her belly with a baby in it, right? And so the, this question of why gets at the fact that, that repentance isn't just about behavior modification. It's about true heart change. Repentance is about a heart change before it's about a direction change. And it's not, it's not that we don't want behavior modification, but we want the heart that leads to behavior modification because we know that what we do actually comes out of who we are and what we believe and who we follow. Repentance also crushes our idols. It says there in verse 17, if you'll look with me, it says, if your heart turns away, that's, that's again heart language, if your heart turns away, you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, to worship other gods and serve them. Repentance helps crush our idols. Ted Tripp, a pastor um, kind of in the New England area, says this is worshiping beings. Human beings always worship someone or something. This is not a situation where some people worship and some don't. If God isn't ruling my heart, someone or something else will. It is the way we were made. So if repentance isn't part of our life, worship drift will occur because we'll start to worship good things made ultimate. As I said, repentance will help worship drift to not occur. If you've ever um, sailed or if, you, if, if you've ever piloted an aircraft, I, I don't know how many, I know quite a few people actually since moving here that either have their own aircraft or do pilot aircraft. But if, you, if you've ever been in either of those two things, you'll know that one degree off course over the period of time that you're sailing or flying can actually lead you so far away from where you wanted to go, right? In the same way, even worshiping a small thing can eventually lead to wholehearted devotion, 
to a God that's not really a God at all. And God was worried about that because he was taking his people into a new place with foreign nations who worship these small G gods, and he was worried that their hearts were going to stray after them. They had done this before. They're going to do it again. And he knew that. So he's trying to tell them that repentance actually helps with this worship drift. And the third thing, repentance implies obedience. If true repentance actually happens, if our hearts really change, then obedience is the natural result of that. Because if we turn away from our sin, if we turn away from ourself and turn towards Christ, then following him looks like obedience, walking in his ways. So why is it so hard for us to be a people of repentance. If this is a large category in the Bible, if this is something that's, that's struck over and over again in the Bible, why is it hard for us to do this? Why don't our families and our churches have more repentance in them? Well, I think there are a number of things we could say here, but I think two things that I've noticed recently is that, um, and these are probably even coming from me personally, just uh, my heart is rebelliously prideful. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes our hearts aren't even changed. So if our heart is, is rebelliously prideful, you know, sin entered this world. In Genesis 3, what happened is, is man and woman, Adam and Eve, our first parents, our representative parents, um, walked away from God. They turned away from God when he gave them the decision to do what he said to do. They walked away from God, and sin entered this world. And where sin is prevalent, pride grows. And I know in my own heart, pride has become something where even when I know I've done something wrong, I don't want to admit it. I don't want to tell anybody about it. I don't want to do anything about it because it it strikes our sin. It strikes our pride. So let me ask you this. When you get pulled over for speeding, who or what do you generally try to blame? That's where, that, that, that was something that I was thinking about this week is, is we, we like to think of, of, of that as not being a, a real sin or something like that. We like to try and find anybody or anything to actually push the blame towards, right? Like as though that, that, that uh, speed limit should have been lowered, or lowered, <laughs> raised, you know? I know that's my temptation, is to try to find anybody to blame besides myself. But the worst thing, the most alarming thing that I think this text is getting at, of why we don't repent, is because our hearts just might not be changed. We talked about circumcision and this change of heart. And if we're honest with ourselves, maybe some of us really, our hearts have not been changed. They've been calloused to the ways of Christ. But the gospel pushes back against this reality because the gospel is extremely real with sin. Jesus says to each and every single one of us that sin is real and that we are deep in it, but he is willing and able to take us out of it. He yearns that we would turn away from that sin and that we would essentially put it on his back and he would take it to the cross on our behalf. That's what the gospel says, that sin is real, but Jesus will take it from us if we turn away from it and put our faith in him. So maybe something for you to take home today is this. Think through what are some of the idols that you have in your heart? Uh, in your heart? What are some of the ways that you, the patterns of sin that you um, tend towards? And ask maybe the person who's closest to you, the person who knows you the best, if they would lovingly and carefully tell you where your patterns of sin are. And then repent of those sins. Repent to them, repent to God, and turn back towards Christ. Because those people are hopefully loving you enough to be able to tell you ways that you can grow in holiness and obedience to Jesus.
Well, we talked about repentance that, that leads in life. Now let's look at how obedience continues in this walk towards Christ, continues in this direction change, and moves closer and closer to Christ. Let's talk about obedience. We don't really like the idea of obedience, and I understand that, so please try not to tune out right now, and just wait till I'm done, and then you can tune out later. Um, obedience basically just means we do what God has said. Obedience just means that we do what God has said, and it's also very common in the Bible. And the difference between repentance and obedience is, as I just said, is repentance is turning 180 degrees back towards Christ and away from our sin, and obedience is just striving after that. You know, Philippians 2 will say is to work out our salvation, moving in obedience towards Jesus. And all of this, well, I've got um, Pastor Gary Miller will say this, the life of faith throughout the Bible involves an initial commitment or act of repentance, followed by a lifetime consisting of similar decisions to submit to the Lord, constantly reorienting reorienting one's life to conform with the pattern that he has laid down. So two things that this text shows us about obedience. The first is that obedience is to God's word specifically, and the second is that obedience is very possible. If you look with me at verse 2, It says, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today. And then in verse 10, it says, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. Obedience is to what God has said, to what Christ has said. And so this isn't just talking about the first five books of the Bible, but indeed it's talking about the entire Bible. We are to obey and to listen to and to follow what Christ has said in his word to his people. And what's interesting about that is, uh, well, we talked about this as, as we think about that. The other thing I want to say is that this is all taken out of a context of grace. We recognize that God has already redeemed this people, and now he has given them his law. And so it's important to recognize that it isn't just saying, do this, but God's actually saying, I've already done this. And out of this overflow of my joy and my grace in saving you from your sin and your slavery, please listen to me and follow me, because that's what a covenant looks like. That's what, that's what a relationship looks like, is loving obedience to one another. So God's word, obedience is obedience to God's word. And the second is that obedience is actually possible. Verses 11 to 13. For this com- commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and to bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. And then in verse 14, but the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. The word is near and clear and it is actually possible to do. Now, I'll be honest, a lot of people don't preach that message very often because it's, it's a challenge. And, and in one sense, it's true. It's true. We can't obey everything that God has said. So Jesus will say, nobody can actually fulfill the will of the Lord perfectly, the law of the Lord perfectly. And yet, Jesus saves us from our sin so that we can obey him. Not because we will ever be able to do it perfectly, but because he has done it perfectly first. And because following in him is what it means to follow in Christ's likeness and obedience. So that being said, why do we struggle with obedience? Why do we struggle with this idea of obedience even? Just to follow Jesus, to do what he says. Why is it hard for us to do that? Well, I think 
I think one of the reasons is that we forget that we're creatures. We forget that we're, we, we're actually um, creatures, which means that there actually is a creator, right? We think we're independent beings that can make all of our own decisions, but, but God is the one who actually defines what life should look like, and we quickly forget that. And the second thing is that we actually think that our way is the best way. We think we know the best way, and then we think it is the best way, and then that's what we do. And and if you're anything like me, I know when I have a way that God has already said, I'm like, yeah, God, you got it right, man. You got that one right, right here in the Bible. But then if I'm looking at what God has said and I don't agree with it, maybe you can relate to this. Who usually wins? I know in my life it is hard to follow God when I don't agree with what the text says. But he says, follow me, because this is what life was designed to look like. The gospel says that God actually defines what life is supposed to be, what abundance and blessing and goodness looks like. And he says you can have this if you turn from your sin, if you repent of your sin and obey me. I think we've seen in this text at least a little bit that to choose life, this big decision, is to repent and to obey. It says all over this text that if that happens, that blessing will happen. And what's interesting is if, if we look at what blessing is, oftentimes we're nervous to talk about blessing for doing things biblically because we think that, you know, it kind of smells of false teaching. It kind of has this, this reek of, of, wait a second, I don't know if we're supposed to say that, but it's in the text. It says that we'll be blessed for following what God has said. So we've got to do something with it. And I think the question isn't about whether we're blessed if we follow what God has said, but how we're blessed. And I think we see that in verses 19 and 20, if you'll read with me. It says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life. This blessing that God promises for repentance and obedience is less a what and more a who. It's not just a place, but it's actually a person because God says in his word that our following him results in being in him. And that's the good news of the gospel, that if we turn from our sin and obey what he has said in his word, we actually get to live in Jesus Christ and he in us. And in the new heavens and in the new earth, when they come, it talks a lot about a place, but the most important thing it talks about is the person who's there. It says there will be no moon, there will be no darkness, because Jesus' light fills everything. And that's the good news of the gospel. I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus, when he starts and ends his earthly ministry, has these ideas of repentance and obedience in mind. In Mark 1, when he inaugurates his kingdom, he comes and he says, the gospel of God is at hand, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. And in Matthew 28, when he ends his earthly ministry, He says, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to obey, to do all that I have commanded. Repentance looks like turning away from sin, turning towards Jesus. Obedience is walking in the same direction towards the life that God promises in Christ. So Jesus is calling each and every single one of us to answer the question, Will you follow Christ? Repent and obey. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your word, and we know that it is near and clear. Lord, I pray that 
as our hearts are moved to respond in worship, Lord, that you would help us to see our need for you in everything we do, that nothing can be done apart from you and your saving work. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.